This message was presented at the GYC to the End in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Our seminar is entitled The Art of End Time Preaching. And as I mentioned before, we're doing a shorter version of a fuller series that, that uh, we, have, uh, we have yet to record, uh, but that we have presented in other places. Uh, within the next few months, hopefully, we'll be able to get this recorded and make it available. Um, you can write down our website, artofpreachingseminar.com, and, uh, just, just, uh, or revelationfulministries.com, and we'll make announcements eventually on when that will be available in the future. But in this next presentation, we're going to do something very special. We're going to sit at the feet of the greatest preacher that has ever preached, Lord Jesus himself. We're going to learn the, of the method of Christ, the Bible study, the sermon of Jesus, and uh, how to preach just like Jesus. And so I hope you brought your Bibles. I hope you brought a notebook. Uh, our time is limited, so we're going to pray and jump right on into it. So please bow your heads with me and let us pray. Thank you so much, dear God, for giving to us your word that is not only a map that shows us how to get to heaven, but it's also a manual that shows us how to live on earth and how to minister to others. And so, Lord, as we open this, your manual, we pray that you'd please teach us, that you'd give us wisdom and understanding, that we might have the experience of Jesus in preaching and sharing and witnessing to others. Please, Holy Spirit, be with my voice, be with all of our minds, and bless us and inspire us now as we sit at your feet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The message of the Master. We're going to look at the greatest sermon that has ever been preached from the greatest story that has ever been told. This discourse has been described as heaven's benediction to the world. It is the sermon of all sermons from the preacher of all preachers, a celestial address given directly from the throne of God. It is a heavenly homily, high and in nature and elevated in its source, and yet it, it's a message that touches all of humanity with down-to-earth relevance, a message easy to understand and easy to apply given by the master teacher, the prince of all preachers. It was early one Galilean morning when Jesus gathered the multitudes on the grassy mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee. My wife and I were there not long ago. We got the chance to visit the Mount of Blessings. And we were amazed to notice that the shape of the mountain is like a natural amphitheater. And because of the unique shape of that mount, the acoustics are such that the one that is speaking on the top can easily be heard from the one sitting at the bottom. And that's where Jesus gave this beautiful sermon. It was upon this Mount of Blessing that it seems for a moment that Jesus somehow forgets that he is in this world. He begins to employ heavenly language directly from the, the, the word of light. As he opens his mouth, a rich current of blessing flows from his lips, Words to water the dry, parched ground of humanity springing forth in abundant life. It is a sermon that's worth repeating. A sermon, a timeless message for all people in all ages, for all time. You see, many sermons have been preached in our world and many sermons have been forgotten. But this one will be remembered for all eternity. It is a sermon that not only teaches us how to live the life of the life giver, but it also teaches us how to preach the message of the master preacher. I want you to notice what it says in Testimonies, volume 7, page 269 and 270. It says this, the Sermon on the Mount is on what? An example of how we are to teach what pains Christ has taken to make mysteries no longer mysteries. But plain, simple truths. There is in his instruction nothing vague and nothing hard to understand. He opened his mouth and taught them. His words were spoken in no whispered tones, nor was his utterance harsh and disagreeable. He spoke with clearness and emphasis, with solemn, convincing force. An earnest, prayerful study on the, of the Sermon on the Mount 
will prepare us to proclaim the truth to give to others the light that we have received. And so, my friends, to experience the reality of that promise, we're going to give special attention to this sermon. We're going to look into the homiletics of Jesus, taking special note of the content of his communication, the substance of his sermon, and we want to find out what is Jesus' go in the message, what is his objective in the discourse. And friends, time is not going to permit us to dissect every detail of the discourse. Only eternity will provide us the time enough to understand it completely. But today we want to highlight two main things of this, in the Sermon on the Mount. Number one, we're going to ask the question, what is Jesus saying? That's the content of his communication. And we also want to ask the question, why is he saying it the way and in the order in which he's saying it? That is, we want to look at his intentions in his instructions. We're going to look at the objectives in his directives and the intentions in his his instructions. And we're going to see, friends, that there's actually an outline in the Sermon on the Mount. As I've studied it and observed it carefully, a prayerful consideration, an examination of this sermon, I found that there are four main parts to Jesus' sermon. I'm going to give them to you right now, and we'll demonstrate it for the rest of our time today. Jesus' sermon outline has four main parts in this sequential order. Number one, a captivating introduction. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 17 is the introduction of the sermon. Number two, a convincing interpretation. Matthew 5, verses 17 to the rest of that chapter is that part of the sermon, convincing interpretation. The third part of the sermon is a convicting application of that convincing interpretation. Convicting application. Matthew 6, verse 1, all the way to chapter 7, verse 6, is that part of the sermon. And then the final part, the fourth part of Jesus' sermon outline is the compelling close. You'll find that from Matthew 7, verse 7, to verse 27. And so if I was the one that uh, did the the chapter divisions of the Bible, I would have done it like that. Captivating introduction, convincing interpretation, convicting application, and a compelling close. We're going to go through each one of these sections to find out the purpose of the section and the objectives in the directives of Christ. But first, let's imagine the context. As the crowds gathered on that mountainside to listen to Jesus, there was an electrifying feeling of expectancy that permeated the people. They expected that some announcement was about to be made concerning the long-awaited kingdom of God. And many eager faces sitting there gave evidence of deep interest. Their hearts were filled with thoughts of future glory. And they felt that that the hope of their future glory was fast becoming a present reality. Now was the time that Israel should have dominion over the hated Romans. Now was the time for them to trade in their rags for riches. Now was the time for them to exchange days of difficulties with seasons of serenity and times of tranquility. Now was the time for them to shine and put all their enemies to shame. And so as they sat there waiting to listen to the sermon, their hearts were thrilled with the proud hope that Israel is soon to be honored before all the nations of the earth as the chosen of the Lord and Jerusalem exalted as the, the head of a universal kingdom. So they thought, so they believed, so they were told. But the people sitting there had no idea what they were talking about. They had no idea as to the true nature of the kingdom. And Jesus knew the widespread misconception concerning his kingdom. He realizes that they are so off in their theology. And so how does he correct this faulty mindset? He needs to meet them where they're at and bring them where they need to be. And by the way, that ought to be the goal of every sermon picking up the people exactly where they're at and bringing them to where they need to be according to the will of God. That's the goal of every sermon. And the Spirit uses the preacher to do just that, to come down to earth in relevance, in connection, and to lift people up that they might sit with Jesus in heavenly places. It is to be a spiritual journey that's destined for a decision. And this journey always begins with the first section, the captivating 
introduction. So let's take, let's go to our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And I want you to notice how Jesus begins this amazing sermon. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. And when you're there, please say, Amen. Matthew 5, 1 says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, what are the first thing Jesus said? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. My friends, I want you to notice, we're not going to take the time to read every verse. But in this first section, this captivating introduction, Matthew 5, 1 through 17, Jesus does at least five things to grab and arrest the attention of the people. At least five things, we will list them on the screen, and we'll hope you'll write them down. Number one, he begins the sermon, he begins to grab their attention by blessing and encouragement. He begins by pronouncing blessings. In other words, Jesus did not begin by making a direct attack on the problems of the people. Now, friends, did the people have problems, yes or no? They had major issues, they had major misunderstandings, but Jesus does not begin by addressing that. He begins by speaking words of blessing, words of hope, words of encouragement. And friends, when you begin in that way, encouragement softens the heart in preparation to be cut with the word of truth. And so if you want to captivate the attention of the person you're trying to win, don't begin by rebuking them or something that is going to rub them the wrong way. Begin the introduction with blessing and encouragement. Let them first know that they are beloved of the Lord, called with a purpose. Let them know first that God understands their difficulties and knows their pain. That's what Jesus did. He said, blessed, 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 blessed. The second thing he's doing in this captivating introduction is he's meeting the people where they're at. He's meeting the people Where they're at, Jesus is doing that by speaking to their felt needs. Their what kind of needs? Now, friends, you realize that there are two kinds of needs. There are real needs and there are felt needs. How many of you heard this before? Every person has two kinds of needs, two categories of needs. There are real needs and felt needs. What is the real need of all of humanity? But what specifically about Jesus do we need? What, what, What do we need, friends? Salvation, amen, and that's why the word Jesus called Savior, he offers that salvation. What we really need is salvation from sin, but many people don't recognize their real need because they have a bunch of felt needs, needs that they feel that they can't even think about eternal realities because they have some felt needs that ought to be met first. What are some felt needs? I'm hungry, I need some food. I'm thirsty, I need something to drink. I'm dirty, I need a shower. I have problems with my children. I don't know what to do. My marriage has been attacked. What do I do? And many times, until we help people or meet their felt needs, then we can deal with their real needs. So that's what Jesus is essentially doing in the first part of the sermon. He is speaking to their felt needs. He's meeting them where they're at by speaking to their felt needs. He's communicating to them that he knows what they're going through. He understands their difficulty, that they're poor, that they're meek, they're hungry, they're persecuted. And so when he said, blessed are you who have all these needs, they realize, wow, he knows what I'm going through. He's speaking to their situation. And friends, when you speak to a person's situation, that will automatically grab and captivate their attention. And so you have to know your audience in order to do this. But friends, you don't have to know them like personally. I mean, it's far better to know a person personally to know how to reach them perfectly. But all we need to do is understand what people are asking. The essential questions of life. Remember we talked about that? And the practical questions of life. When we, when we remember that people are asking, where did I come from? Who am I? Why am I here? How shall I live? Where am I going? How do I raise my kids? How do I manage my finances? How do I take care of the practical things of life? You speak to those felt needs. And that will grab the attention of the people. So when I was in Africa, I spoke, I grabbed people's attention by, by, by using the, 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 the Maasai warrior spear and the shuka to illustrate the spear of God's word. 
and the covering, the shuka of Christ's righteousness. In the stolen lands of the beautiful islands of Hawaii, I speak about a heavenly paradise that will never be taken away. On the cold campus of Andrews University, I lifted up heaven's ideal for true education. In the blood-stained soil of Paris, we talked about the prophetic events that took place in those lands. Friends, you have to meet people where they're at, speaking to their specific situation. And that will arrest the attention of the people. A third thing Jesus is doing here is he is surprising people with the unexpected. He's surprised. You see, this introduction is completely different from what they believed. Because they thought that the kingdom of heaven was for the rich, the wise, the mighty, and the powerful. But Jesus is saying, no, the kingdom of heaven is for the meek and the poor and the hungry and the persecuted. This was so different from what they thought was truth. In other words, his introduction was unpredictable. And so in the same way, in order to grab people's attention, we need to vary our approach so as to not be so predictable to our audience. In other words, make a statement with a statistic, a story, or a song. Make a point with a picture, a parable, or a poem. Surprising people with the unexpected. Jesus' opening statements were surprising and provocative and encouraging all at the same time. His introduction was the perfect blend and balance between comfort and conviction. He was comforting the poor and the humble, but he was also convicting the rich and the proud. And that's what he did. Number three, surprise people with the unexpected. If that makes sense, please say amen. And then notice verse 14. We're going to go past the blessings, jump to verse 14. You can read the whole thing, of course, on your own. But verse 14, Jesus says, you are the what? The light of the world, a city set upon a hill. You know what Jesus is doing here? When he says, you're the light of the world, he's doing number four. He is affirming truth that the people already believed. You see, they believed that they were indeed the light of the world. This was a long-held, cherished belief amongst Israel. They misunderstood what that meant. But nonetheless, even though they had the wrong interpretation of it, they believed that it was true that they were called to be the light of the world. They esteemed themselves above other nations in importance. They had the wrong interpretation of this truth. And yet Jesus still affirmed that they were indeed called and chosen to be the light of the world. Here's the point, friends. If you want to captivate someone's attention in the introduction, you have to agree on any point that you're able to do so. You have to affirm the truth that people already believe in their hearts. And by doing this, you're winning the confidence of your hearers from the very beginning. Now, sometimes this is hard to do, right? If someone is so engrossed in error, ignorance, and darkness, sometimes it's hard to affirm something that they believe. But God will give us wisdom to know how to do it. So let's take a few examples. Let's say you meet someone and they're, uh, you know, they're a strong evangelical and they are talking about the secret rapture. And they're like, man, when the Lord comes and the church is just raptured out of, uh, and it's going to be secret and silent, oh, I hope I don't get left behind. What can you agree in that statement? I mean, that, that statement is full of error, but there's, there has to be something that we can agree on. What, what, what do you think, what can we say to agree? Praise God, Jesus is coming. <laughs> Now, he's not coming in the secret rapture, of course, but we don't have to directly attack their idea of the secret rapture because when someone is first attacked, what is the natural response? Fight or flee, right? But if we affirm something that is true in what they said, we are winning their attention. We're breaking down the barriers that are held up. What about if someone says, man, my, 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 my mother passed away and I'm so grateful that she's with Jesus now. I'm so grateful that she's in a better place. What can you agree with in that statement? Thank God that she is in a better place. Now, we know that that better place is not in heaven because if you're in heaven when you die, you're looking upon the world and you, and you see your family members suffer, that's, that's going to be terrible. If a husband dies and goes to heaven, looking down upon his wife and notice that she's crying, oh, man, that's, that's, that's a terrible thing, right? But as the husband continues to look and notice that as time goes on, the wife is not crying as much as she used to. And then all of a sudden, someone, other brother makes the moves on his wife. 
And they get together and they start a relationship. And from heaven, he's seeing this. And then he sees his wife get married and he sees them on their wedding night. Oh, that would be terrible. Thank God our loved ones are in a better place. If it's in heaven, it's not a better place. <laughs> what about if someone, you know, they're, they're declaring to you their, their love for, for pork chops and bacon? Man, oh, I just love, I just love pepperoni pizza. What can you agree on in that statement? What can you say that instead of going against it? Thank God for taste buds. Oh, I agree. Thank the Lord he gave us taste buds. <laughs> so sometimes it's harder to, it's hard to do, but, but God will give you wisdom to know how to affirm some kind of truth to find a point that you can agree on. Do this in the introduction. Don't do like what some door knockers do. They go directly for what we have different. Don't do that. We have to be right, but we need to be winsome first. We, maybe not first, but together. We need to be right and winsome, biblical and beautiful at the same time. And so Jesus does that. He affirms the truth people already believe. He said, you are the light of the world. They didn't understand what that meant. They had a misunderstanding of it, but he did affirm that that was true. And then number five, Jesus articulates <coughs> what the people are thinking before he verbalized it. Notice verse 17. Verse 17, Matthew 5, verse 17. What does Jesus say? What are the first two words of verse 17? Think not. Now, why did Jesus say that? Because he knew what they were thinking. He, they, he, he knew that they were thinking that he was coming to destroy the law and the prophets. So Jesus said, don't think like that. He knew what they're thinking. And he articulated that which they were thinking. When someone articulates what you're thinking, does that grab your attention? Of course. And that's what Jesus do. When he says, think not, he's articulating what they're thinking. So we need to speak as though we can read people's minds. Now, we can't read anyone's mind. But when you speak to the questions that people are asking, and when you speak to the concerns people have, before they even verbalize it, by doing so, you're speaking as though you can read people's minds. By doing this, we're answering people's objections, disarming their prejudices before they even bring it up. And that always grabs people's attention. Have you ever experienced that? You're listening to a sermon and the, the preacher is describing your situation and you're like, man, how does he know? <laughs> well, he doesn't know, but he knows someone who does know. And so, what constitutes a good, captivating introduction? Number one, begin with blessings and encouragement. Number two, meet people where they're at. Speak to their felt needs. Number three, surprise people with the unexpected. Number four, affirm the truth that they already believe. And number five, articulate what the people are thinking before they even verbalize it. This is what Jesus does in the captivating introduction. If that's clear, say amen. <clears throat> now, the second section is a convincing interpretation. And this is Matthew 5, 17 to the rest of that chapter, to verse 44. What does Jesus do here? Jesus, his burden, the burden of Christ in this second section is to give people the correct interpretation of the law. Jesus in this section is appealing to the mind of the people. He's appealing to their thinking and reasoning process. And the reason why this is so important, he's already grabbed their attention and he now needs to deal with their theology, their interpretation of the law. Why? Because listen, friends, our beliefs are the foundation of our experience. As the foundation is to the house, so are beliefs to the experience. Because it is your mind that produces your thoughts and feelings. Thoughts and feelings are made manifest in your words and actions. Your words and actions form habits. Your habits make up your character. And your character determines your destiny. In other words, your destiny is determined by your character, which is made up of your habits, which are formed by your words and actions that comes from your thoughts and feelings that originate in the mind. So in order to have a correct character and destiny, we first have to have a correct mindset or theology. 
That's why it is ludicrous. It is foolishness. It is the deception when people say, oh, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you experience the presence. My friends, the experience is faulty if the foundation is faulty. Amen. And unfortunately, that's what we see happening in this ecumenical movement sweeping across the churches of the world today. They say we put all our doctrinal differences aside because we all have the presence. We all have the experience, this charismatic speaking in tongues and these, this some kind of subjective personal feeling that the devil can easily manipulate. That's why we must have, make sure the foundation is the word. Amen? So Jesus is laying the foundation in this second section. He's dealing with a convincing interpretation. Dealing with the spirituality of the law. And so he is seeking to correct their faulty experience by first correcting their faulty theology. Jesus knew what they heard. Jesus knew what they knew. So he took what they knew and he went deeper and further with it. He makes the claims of the law practical, thus making it relevant. I want you to notice how he did it. Verse 17, you can read it in your Bible, it's also on the screen. Jesus says, think not. So automatically, he's appealing to their reason. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to what? Fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be what? Now, friends, this is a very popular verse that we like to use in evangelistic meetings. It's a very important verse. But you realize that this verse is used in two contradictory ways in Christendom today. Number one, People read this verse and they say this. We no longer have to keep the law because Jesus fulfilled it. That's how most evangelicals read this verse. You see it right here. We no longer have to keep the law. Jesus fulfilled it. And then there are others who say, no, we still need to keep the law because Jesus didn't destroy it. And that's what most Adventists say. But friends, do you realize that both of those statements, we don't have to keep the law because Jesus fulfilled it. And we still have to keep the law because Jesus didn't destroy it. Both of those statements are half true. Because Jesus is not just referring to the law, he's also referring to the, and you know what the law and the prophets are? That's the whole testament. One jot, one tittle, that's everything in the Old Testament. And so the question is this. Are there some parts of the Old Testament that we no longer have to keep? Yes or no? Yes. Are there other parts of the Old Testament that we are expected to keep? Yes. So both of those statements, the statement, we don't have to keep the law because Jesus fulfilled it. No, we still have to keep the law because Jesus didn't destroy it. Both are half true. And so how do we understand this this verse? The key, because listen, some parts of the Old Testament were, were temporal ceremonies. Other parts were eternal precepts. So the key to understand this verse is found in the Greek definition of the word fulfill. It's the word plero. Can you say that? And this word plero, this Greek word is used three ways that can have three different applications. And the application of the word plero can be applied differently according to the nature of the subject that it is applied to. So let me give you the definitions of the word plero, and we'll apply it, we'll see how they apply differently to different parts of the law and the prophets. One of the definitions of the word plero is accomplish, ratify, execute, perform. Did Jesus keep the law in his life? Yes, he fulfilled it. He, he, he accomplished it. He ratified it. He executed it perfectly. He kept the law perfectly. Number two, to The word pleto also means to fill to the full, as in a cup. Fulfill, fill to the full, to complete, to fill up. And Jesus did that with the law and the prophets. When he said, the law says, thou shalt not kill, but I say to you, if you're angry without a cause, you've already murdered. He's filling the law to its fullness. He's showing the true depths of the law, that the law not only governs our behavior, but also the intentions and motives of the heart. The letter of the law says, thou shalt not commit adultery. But if you lust, you've already committed adultery. He's filling it to the full. He's showing the true depths of that law, that it's much more than the outward actions like the Jews believe. 
It's the intentions and motives of the heart. Now, Jesus is not saying that you don't have to keep the law because I'm giving you a, a different standard. He's not saying you can go ahead and lust or you can go ahead and commit adultery as long as you're not lusting while you do it. That would make no sense, right? My friends, many people are keeping the letter of the law, but they're not keeping the spirit of the law. But you cannot truly keep the spirit of the law without also keeping the letter of the law. It is impossible for you to commit adultery and not lust because the lust comes before the adultery. Isn't that right? It's, it, it, you can't murder someone without first being angry. The anger comes first. And so Jesus is not destroying the law. He's filling it to its fullness. He's showing the true depths of the law. If that makes sense, please say amen. amen. But then there's another uh, uh, definition of the word pledo. Is it means to carry to the end. Bring to realization. And friends, when it came to the ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament, those were temporal prophecies, and Jesus carried that to the end. He fulfilled it in that way. We no longer have to keep those things because those were temporary prophecies, and so that's the reason why I say that both of those statements, we don't have to keep the law and the prophets because Jesus fulfilled it. We do have to keep the law and the prophets, because Jesus didn't destroy it, both are half true. Does that make sense? <clears throat> so the nature or the application of the word pleto is dependent upon the nature of the subject that is applied to. And not every subject in the Old Testament is of the same nature, of the same category. Some are eternal principles, others are temporal prophecies. And so Jesus is, is now, what is he going to do? He's going to fulfill the law and the prophets. He's going to fill the cup of their understanding of the Old Testament. And he does this not so much by giving a new cup of teachings, but rather filling up the old cup. Notice what he says next in verse 20. For I say to you that except your what? Righteousness. So now Jesus is about to discuss the righteousness of the law and the prophets. The righteousness. Now what is righteousness? Psalms 119, 172, my tongue shall speak of thy word, for all thy commandments are righteousness. So we go back. Except your righteousness shall, what is that word? Exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying something very interesting here. He says that in order for us to enter into heaven, our righteousness must exceed that of the, the, the religious teachers of the day. Now, if you look up the word exceed, it's the word perusio. Can you see that? Perusio. Oh, what's going on here? Wow. My button got stuck. Perusio. And that literally means overflow. So it's interesting. Fulfill means to fill to the full. Exceed means to overflow. Christ is not only filling the law to the full, but in doing so, that interpretation would overflow the righteousness of the Pharisees. In other words, the righteousness of God would go well beyond, it would exceed the shallow and surface understanding that the people had concerning the law and the prophets. Jesus says, if you want to be saved, it must exceed, it must overflow, not just fill to the full, but overflow that which the scribes and Pharisees understand. But here's the thing, friends. The Jews had 613 codified laws in the Mishnah. They had 600, 600, 613 laws. And so do we really need more than that? What does Jesus mean that our righteousness must exceed? It's not in quantity but in quality. Not in quantity of righteousness, but in the quality of righteousness. In other words, the cup of the understanding of the Pharisees was too small to fill the fullness of God's law. So what Jesus is saying is this, if you want to enter into heaven, you need a bigger cup. Not more cups, not more laws, but a bigger one, a more quality one. And so Jesus fulfills or fills the cup of their understanding full by repeating something over and over again in this section. He says this over and over again. You have heard, but I say to you. You have heard, but I say to you. 
It has been said. But I say to you, what is Jesus doing? He's taking what they heard, what they understood righteousness to be, and he's filling it to the fore. He's saying, but here's the true interpretation. But I say to you. And so when you read the rest of chapter 5, you see that repeated over and over. And friends, whenever you see repetition, you see a pattern, take special note of that. There's something, there's an intention, there's, there's something that God is doing whenever you see something repeated, uh, a phrase being repeated over and over. By this expression, you have heard, but I say to you, Jesus is interpreting the true meaning of the law. He's not really introducing anything new. He's simply filling up the old. Why? Because, listen, friends, there is no contradiction between the Old and New Testament. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Did you catch that? Let me say it again. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. They are in agreement. It's just a different a a different manifestation of the same truths. And so, you read verse 21 and 22, Jesus said, you have heard, thou shalt not kill. But I say to you, if you're angry, you've already murdered. Verse 27, you have heard, thou shalt not commit adultery. Verse 28, but I say to you, if you have lust, you're already guilty. Then the issue of divorce in verse 31, it hath been said, whoever shall put away his wife, let him give him a a writing of divorcement. Verse 32, but I say to you, He's giving the true interpretation of the law. Then the issue of oaths. Verse 33, you have heard it had been said, thou shalt not forswear thyself. Verse 34, but I say to you, swear not at all. Verse 38, you have heard an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Verse 39, but I say to you. Again, friends, you see that repetition, that pattern. Jesus is explaining. He's appealing to the mind to think more deeply about what they had heard. And what they had read. And then the climax of this section, verse 44 and on, verse 43 and on, you have heard, thou shalt love thy neighbor, hate thine enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. And then he concludes by saying, be ye therefore, what is that word right there? Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And friends, the definition of the word perfect is mature. Be perfect, mature, as your Father in heaven. In other words, they had an immature understanding of righteousness. They had an immature understanding of obedience, an immature understanding of the law and the prophets. Their understanding was works-based. They knew the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. They had cups of truth, but they were empty of the spirit of truth. So Jesus fills up their cup. He's seeking to perfect the maturity of their understanding of the law. He's showing them what true spiritual maturity looks like. He's laying a solid theological foundation to their house of practical experience. This section, the second section, the true interpretation of the law, is what lays the foundation for the third section. And that is, as we continue, a convicting application. Section two was a convincing, dealing with the mind convincing interpretation. Section 3, convicting application. And that begins in Matthew 6 and verse 1. Now, friends, let me explain it. We don't have the time to read all the verses, but you'll, you'll notice these observations when you study it for yourself. In this next section, Jesus now deals with what I call the heart of the matter. His burden in this section is now to make a heart application of the true interpretation he had made in the previous section. Christ now deals primarily in this section with the motives, with the what? The motives of the heart. He's now explaining the whys behind the what. In the second section, convincing interpretation, he's explaining what righteousness is. In the second section, he's explaining why it's so important, the heart application, the true motive of keeping the law and the prophets. He's doing some heart surgery now, explaining the whys behind the what. You see, as Adventists, we know a lot of what's. But many times we are so prone to lay it aside and not care too much of it because we don't understand the why behind the what. So don't just explain what day the Sabbath is. Explain the why 
behind the word. Don't just explain the things that God expects us to do in His word and the things that He doesn't want us to eat. Explain the whys behind the what's the purpose for the commandment. And when we understand the purpose, it gives us the motivating power to see the logic in it and want it and want it for our lives. You see, the difference between convincing and convicting is essentially this. To be convinced means you understand what the truth is. But to be convicted is you want that truth in your life. Many people are convinced, but they're not convicted. Many people know what truth is, but they don't want it in their lives. Why? Because they don't understand the purpose, the reason, the blessing, the benefit behind it. So now Jesus is dealing with the heart of the matter, making heart application, and he does this by repeating a phrase over and over again. Here's what he does. Jesus says, do not do such and such like that, but rather do it like this so that you can experience these blessings. Jesus repeats this over and over in this section. Don't do it like that. You're doing it the wrong way with the wrong motive. Do it like this, the true motive, heart motive, so that you can experience these blessings. He's going for the heart in this section, a convicting application. And so he's taking his hearers deeper than they've ever gone before. He's rebuking the selfish motives they had in their performance, and he's highlighting true motives. He's already finished with his work on the mind in the second section. Now he's seeking to do the work on the heart in this third section. And so if you read it, Matthew 6, I will summarize it. The first thing Jesus deals with is charitable deeds. He says, don't give your alms to be seen and rewarded by men. Don't do it like that. Do not sound a trumpet before you do it. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't do it like that. Now, he's not saying don't give alms. He's not saying don't do charitable deeds. He's saying don't do it like the way you've been doing it. But rather, do it like this. Do it secretly to be rewarded by God only. In other words, your motive for doing charitable deeds is not to be praised by men, but to, be, but to, be, to, but to please and glorify God. Amen? Amen? He is aiming for the heart application. And then that's, that's verses 1 through 4. Matthew 6, 1 through 4 is, is dealing with alms. Then Matthew 6, verse 5 through 18, Jesus, Jesus deals with the issue of prayer and fasting. He's not saying don't pray and fast but he's rebuking them for doing it the wrong way. He says, don't do it openly on the street corners. You remember? Don't stand on the street corners and do it in the synagogue to be seen of men. Don't do it like that. Don't don't use vain repetitions and much words to be heard by men. But instead, do it like this. Go in the closet. Shut the door. And say, our Father which art in heaven. Do it secretly and simply to be seen and heard of God. And friends, the motive, again, don't do it to be praised of men, but do it because you love God, not the admiration and recognition of men. He's aiming for the heart application of the true interpretation. And then in verses 19 through 21, Jesus deals with the issue of possessions and and what we seek in life. He's saying, don't lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Don't do it like that because the moth and the rust will destroy it. The thieves will break in and steal it. But instead, do it like this. Lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven. Do it like that. In other words, deny yourself present pleasure in order to store it in a place that will never be destroyed. Eternal reward. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Do not leave your heart in this world for wherever your treasure is. There your heart will be also. In other words, heaven. If you store your treasure in heaven, that means heaven has possession of your heart. And that your heart is not in this world. So don't do it like that. Do it like this. True motive. And then after that, verses 22 through 24, Christ uses an illustration to show that your heart can't be in two places. It can't be on earth and heaven at the same time. And that's why he said no man can serve two masters. It's either the light or it's either the darkness. We cannot serve God and mammon at the same time. And then, verses 25 through 34, Jesus deals with the issue of physical possessions, physical needs, and what we seek. He says, take no thought about your life, what you shall eat, what you shall wear. Don't do it like that. Don't don't think about that. 
Don't seek that first. But rather do it like this. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. And all of those things will be added unto you. He's dealing with physical needs and the most important needs in that and everything else will fall into place. And then Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6, is the final part of this section. Jesus deals with the issue of judging others. And he basically says, do not judge. Don't do it like that. But rather, judge yourself. Why do you try to take that speck from your brother's eye when there's a plank in your own eye? Jesus is not saying don't judge. He's just making sure we're, not, we're judging the right thing. Instead of looking outward, look inward. Take inventory of your own life. Look deeper than just the outward. He's dealing with the issues of the heart. Look into your own heart and then you will see clearly to help others. It's easy to judge others, but we never like to judge ourselves. So Jesus in that section is dealing with a convicting application. He's going for the heart. What Christ is saying in this section is essentially this. God's law of love that I explained in chapter 5 must govern the way you give, the, the, the way you pray. It must govern in what you have and whom you seek and how you view others. Jesus is after our hearts. Why? Because the righteousness that is truly from God must come from the heart surrendered to him. Amen? It says in the book, Desire of Ages 668, one of the most amazing quotations in the spirit of prophecy. It says, all true obedience comes from the what? Therefore, obedience not from the heart is false obedience, which would make it disobedience. All true obedience. You see, they had obedience, but it wasn't from the heart. They were keeping the letter, but not the spirit. And their understanding was shallow. Their cup was empty. All true obedience comes from the heart. It was heart work with Christ. And if we consent, what does that mean? If we give God permission. And by the way, that's the only part we play in the plan of salvation. Consent. Giving God permission. If we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims. And so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will. That when obeying him, we shall be carrying out our own impulses. Wow. That's amazing. Can you imagine that? You're obeying God out of impulse. It is not in our nature to do that. But if we consent, if we give God permission, he will blend. Our lives will be so assimilated with his that obedience flows from the heart. Naturally, we do it because we love God, not because we are afraid of hell or because we're enticed by heaven. We do it because Jesus is enough. Carrying out our own impulses. Oh, I want to have this experience more consistently in my life. How about you? And what is our part? Consent. You see, you have no power to change your life. The only power we have is the power of choice. God has all the power to change our lives. The only power that God does not have is the power to choose for us. So we have choice. God has change. When we give God our choice, he gives us the change. Amen. And then it says, the will refined and sanctified will find its highest delight in doing his service. When we know God as it is our privilege to know him, our life will be a life of continual obedience. And so that's what Jesus does in the third section. First section is what? Do you remember? Come on now. Captivating introduction. Second section, convincing interpretation. Third section, convicting application. Second section is the mind. Third section is the heart. Both of those two things are important because thoughts and feelings make up your character. Now the fourth section, Jesus is beginning to land the sermon plane in a compelling close. And this section is Matthew 7, verses 7 through verse 27. I want you to notice, this heavenly revelation now descends 
in a down-to-earth application. This is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. It is where the seed of truth hits the soil of men's heart to take root and bear fruit in an individual's life. And in this final part of the sermon, what Jesus is, call, is after is decision. He's calling for them to exercise their power of choice, their freedom of the will, to make that convincing and convicting experience a conversion in their lives. So if you read Matthew 7, verse 7, what does it say? Ask, it shall be given. Seek, you shall find. Knock, it shall be, the door shall be opened. Now, friends, these are salvation verbs. These are action words. When Jesus says this, he's actually appealing for them to go ahead and ask, to seek, and to knock. And then in verse 14, or verse 13, Jesus said, knock, in verse 7, but then verse, verse uh, 13, Jesus talks about enter into that gate. Enter into life. These are salvation verbs. The people have been captivated in their emotions in the introduction. They've been convinced in their mind. They've been convicted in their heart. But friends, the conversion of the soul only comes from a decision to respond. I remember doing meetings not long ago in my home church in Hawaii, and I made an appeal, and many people came to the front deciding for Jesus in baptism. At the end, we prayed, and everyone dismissed. I greeted people at the door, and after everyone left, I went back into the church, and I saw this brother by himself in the church, head buried in his arms, a decision card in his hand, and he was weeping. And he told me, I, went, I came up to him, I said, what's wrong, brother? He said, I should have come up. God was calling me. I wanted to come up, but I didn't. I should have come up, and, and I've missed my opportunity. And he felt so bad that he did not respond to the appeal. But then I told him, my brother, it's not too late. While there's still life, there's still hope. We can go right now. So I took him by the hand, and we together walked down to that altar. We knelt down, and we prayed, and he made his decision for the Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen. That's what it's all about, friends. We have to choose. The convincing and the convicting will do us no good if we don't choose to let that become a conversion. And so in this section, Jesus not only says, ask, seek, knock, and enter, but after that... He now appeals for us to make a choice, how? By contrasting several things. He talks about the narrow way and the broad way. And friends, listen, if you have a contrast of two different things, a contrast brings you face-to-face with a choice, a decision. It's the fork in the road, right? You're going down the road, you see a fork, you got to choose which one. So Jesus talks about the broad way and the narrow way. Why? Because he's appealing for a choice, a decision. He talks about the straight gate and the narrow gate. He then, in verses 15 to 20, talks about the good tree and the bad tree, the good fruit and the bad tree, again, a bad fruit, again, a contrast. Verses 21 through 23 of Matthew 7, Christ talks about professors of Christ who say, Lord, Lord. But then he talks about possessors of Christ who do God's will. And then he closes the sermon with the illustration of the wise man and the foolish man. The house built upon the rock, the house built upon the sand. The hearers of the word and the hearers and doers of the word. And friends, when you see a contrast of two objects, it's a call for a decision. Contrast compels us to decide which side of the wall we're going to be on. Jesus essentially in this final section is saying there are only two sides. There is no neutrality in spirituality. It's either on one side or the other. It's either we're going to be saved or we're going to be lost. And if we're almost saved, we're still completely lost. Jesus is saying, choose you this day whom you will serve. And friends, that's the appeal he's making to everyone today. He wants to make it through your lips, friends. First, he wants to make it to your heart. Then he wants to make it through your lips. You see, the life and teachings of Christ were such 
that it forced people to decide. Either to accept him as Christ or crucify him as a criminal. You see, like Pilate, we are forced to decide either for him or against him. We have to decide, friends. I like what Jim Elliot, that famous missionary martyr, said in his prayer. Jim Elliot said, Lord, make me a crisis man. Let me not be a milepost on a single road, but make me a fork that men must turn one way or the other in facing the Christ in me. And so this was the greatest sermon that has ever been heard by the greatest preacher that has ever preached. And what was the impact of the sermon on the hearers? Here was the outcome. Verse 28, 29, we're almost finished. It came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were what? Astonished at his doctrine. For he taught as them, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. His doctrine was astonishing. His message was convincing. His, interp- his application was convicting. His appeal was compelling. It was easy to hear, easy to understand, very simple but profound in its simplicity. My friends, Jesus was a religious teacher of the highest order. For he came from the highest heavens to the lowest parts of the earth. He knew who he was and where he came from and who sent him. And so he was able to speak with power, certainty, and authority that astonished the hearers. He was a speaker that stood out from all the preachers of the day. His message was a clarion call that was heard above the cacophony of confusion in that day and age. His words brought healing, healing words of life and liberty and unfailing love. His teachings and doctrines had heaven's authority and power upon it, and it left the hearers spellbound with convicting power of the Spirit on their hearts. And as a result, people were compelled to follow. follow. And friends, when we follow the example of Jesus, we can expect those same results as well. Amen? It was so powerful that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, sent the Romans to arrest Jesus. You know what happened? The soldiers came to arrest Jesus, and they got, came near to where Jesus was, and they started to hear him speak. And instead of arresting him, they sat down and started to listen. And then when they went back to the Pharisees, they, they, they asked, Why, where is he? Why didn't you arrest him? You know what they said? Never man spoke like that man. And we can have that experience. And so the message, what is the message of the master? Four things as we, as we wind this down. Number one. You begin with a captivating introduction. Then number two, when you got, when you got the attention, you, be, you begin to do a convincing interpretation. Take the hearers, take what they know, go deeper with it. Convincing interpretation. Number three, a convicting heart application of that convincing interpretation. Then number four, a compelling close. This is the sermon outline of Jesus, the message of the master. How many of you want to preach like Jesus? But listen, friends, before we can preach like Jesus preached, we must strive to live like Jesus lived. Ministry of Healing 469 says this, the officers who were sent to Jesus came back with a report that never man spoke as he spoke. But the reason for this was that never man lived as he lived. Had his life been other than it was, he could not have spoken as he did. His his words bore with them a convincing power because they came from a heart pure and holy, full of love, sympathy, benevolence, and truth. Jesus knew what to say because he knew how to live. I want to preach like Jesus I want to live like Jesus, to live the life of the life giver and to preach the message of the master preacher. Is that your desire? If so, stand with me as we close. And let's ask God that he would help us to that end. And before we close, I want to let you know, after lunch, our our third presentation for today, we're going to talk, talk about the managing of the material. 13 steps in sermon preparation. It's going to be very, very practical, step by step. Uh, We'll we'll talk more of the details 
And then our fourth presentation for today is the one you dare not miss. We're going to talk about the creative tools of language and speech. Now it's going to be very, very exciting. So let's bow our heads as we pray. Father, thank you so much for your great love and mercy. Thank you for the privilege that we had to sit at your feet today. To hear not only what you said, but to understand why you said it, the way you said it, and the order that you said it. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God of order. And that you're not only wanting to change our minds, you're wanting to change our hearts. Lord, we stand choosing you. Lord, I pray that you would give us the wisdom and the courage that we might speak like you spoke. But first, give us the love and the power that we might live as you lived. Forgive us for falling short of your glory. Lord, make us better. Make us like Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.